Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, everybody. Welcome to this episode of Hidden Histories. Today, I speak with Dr. Adam Rutherford. Adam is a science writer and broadcaster, and on the radio he's the presenter of BBC4 Radio 4's flagship science programme, Inside Science, as well as documentaries on the inheritance of intelligence, on MMR and autism, human evolution, astronomy and art, science and cinema, scientific fraud, and the evolution of sex. His most recent book, How to Argue with a Racist, is what I invited him on the podcast to discuss back in January, before he then I was struck down with COVID-19. But it seems timely that our new date for the record fell amidst the, the current events in the USA, in the wake of the tragic death of George Floyd whilst in police custody in Minneapolis. I want to open with a short reading from Adam's book. This book is a weapon. It is written to equip you with the scientific tools necessary to tackle questions on race, genes and ancestry. It is a toolkit to help separate fact from myth in understanding how we are similar and how we are different. It is often easier to make a claim than to refute it, but it is my belief that with racism being expressed in public more openly today, it is our duty to contest it with facts, especially if that bigotry claims science is ally. Even some scientists are not necessarily comfortable with expressing opinions derived from their research where it relates to the questions of race. Nevertheless, if you study human genetics, the ocean from which human variation is drawn, you have little choice but to speak of race. We have the responsibility of education to educate ourselves and others about racism and how it has no place or tolerance in our society. I hope that this podcast can be, as Adam says himself, a tool in your argument against racism. Adam Rutherford, welcome to Hidden Histories. Hello, Helen. It's a pleasure to have you on the podcast. We were going to do this a while back, but um, coronavirus got in the way. It did. Um, <laughs> how inconsiderate of it. So we want to talk about your your new-ish book. This was out in January, How to Argue with a Racist. So can I just ask, because I am a medievalist and I'm writing a book about a Plantagenet, is it actually true that most people are descended from the Plantagenets? Well, yes, is the simple answer. Most people with some caveats. And this is a, it's an idea that I started in a previous book, which is to do with, the book was called A Brief History of Everyone Who Ever Lived. And it was, it was a way of using this newfound technology of genetics, of of DNA, being able to get DNA out of living people and dead people. And, and this being a sort of new complementary historical source for 
checking, verifying, challenging how we understand the past using traditional um, historical sources. One of the things that emerges from thinking about genetics and genealogy is that it entangles itself with mathematics very quickly. And so one of the themes of the book is how family trees are not trees at all, but matted webs. And they're sort of simple, obvious, but reasons for that that we don't often think about because we tend to think of lineages and ancestry in simple trees. Anyway, what emerges from looking at the, the, the reality of, of genetic genealogy is that all family tree lines eventually cross through all individuals. And we call the point at which that happens, we call that the, the genetic isopoint. And it's a sort of slightly mind-bending idea because it means that, well, for example, in Europe, the isopoint occurs about a thousand years ago. So it means that everyone alive in Europe a thousand years ago is the direct, actual ancestor of everyone alive in Europe today, assuming that they have any living descendants at all. Now, you know, even even saying it, and I've said that a thousand times over the last few years uh, on interviews and in lectures and to students and so on, and every time I say it, I think, uh, does that can that be right? Is that is that right? And and it is. It's 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 a mathematical certainty. So what it means is that if you take anyone from the tenth century in Europe who has who we know has living descendants today, then what that means is that that person is literally the ancestor of everyone living in Europe today. The, the caveat being recent migrations. So. When when I was I'd written that up and I was, that was a popular lecture that I talked about quite a lot and and um, as I was writing that book there was the the episode of Who Do You Think You Are with Danny Dyer in it in which they they demonstrated that he was twenty I think it was twenty one generations directly descended from Edward the Third when when they revealed that at the end of the program and I love that program it's it's you know it's brilliant personal history um, but when they revealed it he said a couple of funny things which were he said. Uh, uh, I'm going to treat myself to a massive rough. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, and I think roughs were a bit later, but you know, yeah, they were. They were. He could have had a he could have had a plume. A plume. He should have or, said that. Yeah, a helm and a plume. <laughs> but he he also said he said I can't compute this in my brain, and I was sitting there thinking, oh, I wonder if I can compute this in my brain, and. Um, and I set up a little project at UCL where I'm based and with, with a mathematician, well, Hannah Fry, who some, some of your listeners might have heard of. And we worked it out. We worked out the probability that anyone born in 1975, which is Daddy Dyer's birth year and mine, the probability of anyone being descended from directly from Edward III. And I won't go into it now because that proof actually is, is a footnote, a page long footnote in the new book. Um, where I talk about ancestral, the concept of ancestral purity. And the numbers came out with the probability of anyone being not descended from Edward III, who, if you have long-standing English heritage or British heritage, is zero. Uh, it, it, it actually came out as 10 to the minus 21. Uh, so that's that's one with 20, 21 zeros before, before it. Wow. Um, and it's just that we don't think about you know, family trees in, in any sort of accurate way. We, if you can identify one lineage, then that's pretty impressive. With with someone, with that programme, with Danny Dyer, they managed to identify one lineage all the way back to to Edward, to the first Plantagenet. The problem is that it is literally true for everyone. And uh, that includes me and you and um, pretty much all 
English people. So I could, I am likely related to the man that I'm writing about. Not likely. The, the chances of you not being directly descended from Edward III are so close to zero as to be st- statistically non-existent. I will take that. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so going more back to the point of the book, how and when was the concept of race invented? Because this isn't something that existed from, you know, the birth of man. No, that's right. And I think that was one of the things that I was sort of vaguely aware of as a, I'm, I'm not a historian, I'm a scientist, but I was vaguely aware of this from a sort of human uh, genetics point of view. When we think about human variation, why people are look different around the world. But but it was it, it was it's definitely not a uh, an idea which I think is is very well publicly known. The the idea that the the racial taxonomy that we use in the everyday, when we describe people as black or East Asian or uh, you know you know whatever the whatever the distinctions that we use in the everyday language to describe people from around the world, that mostly these definitions are modern and uh, and really only emerge. Well, in the last four or five hundred years in the age of what we call, what some people call the Enlightenment or the Scientific Revolution. And it goes hand in hand with European expansion, the age of plunder, colonialism. When we look at the history of of race, the the terms that we use are a taxonomy in which a a science or pseudoscience more accurately is being co-opted or marshaled into supporting the political ideology of European expansionism. Now, this is not my thesis. This is, you know, this is well documented in, um, uh, in, with historians of race and historians of, of colonialism. And it's just interesting that pigmentation becomes the primary determinant of, of racial characteristics only in about the 17th century. Before that, it's not that pigmentation isn't referenced, it most certainly is, and we know that because in our earliest texts in in the Western in Western culture, in the Iliad and the Odyssey, Homer talks of of pigmentation, and Odysseus himself is described as being dark skinned or swarthy. The Ethiopians, the word Ethiops means literally translates as 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 blackened face, and so it's, it, I'm not suggesting at all that in ancient classical literature people aren't aren't using pigmentation as a descriptor it's just that it, it tends to be less significant in the othering of of the peoples of the world than things like culture and language and religion and it only really becomes the primary determinant of 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 the sort of classification hierarchy because that's what it is during european expansion at, at that time it, race as we currently use it is remarkably modern so essentially it it was used as a descriptive factor previously whereas later it became a categorizing factor yes that's 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 largely yeah that's 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 correct there's there's one significant reference to pigmentation that comes before european expansion and that's by the Uzbeki philosopher stroke proto-scientist avicenna so during the muslim slave era which again i didn't really know anything about this until i started researching the book which, which lasts for you know, 900 years and something like 5 million people enslaved during that time. Um, Avicenna makes a reference to uh, the pigmentation of the enslaved. Um, and what's fascinating about that 
is that lots of Northern European people were enslaved during the Arab slave era, as well as sub-Saharan Africans. And he attaches judgmental behavioural characteristics to the enslaved. He describes the Northern Europeans as being fickle and lazy, you know, pale-skinned, fickle and lazy, and and something similar about sub-Saharan African people. And so it's the first real indicator that you're going to use pigmentation as a way of describing the characteristics of people in order to justify subjugation of them. And that is exactly what happens from the 17th century onwards in, in Europe. But before that, it's just a, it's, it's, it's as much a, a sort of character descriptor. An example I give in, in compare to compare to ancient Greek descriptions of skin colour is that it's a bit like, you might say, describe a blonde woman as being ditzy, which is a very judgmental and, and effectively an insult based on hair colour. That that sort of is a little bit what what Homer is using to describe Odysseus. He's he's saying he's dark skinned, meaning that he's temperamental or uh, somewhat capricious, or you know, just very various characters characteristics associated with with his pigmentation. By the time you get into European colonialization and and this era of scientific taxonomy or pseudo scientific taxonomy, at this point it becomes well, if you've got black skin, you're the following things, including, you know, lazy, physically strong, um, capricious. If, you're, if you've got East Asian skin, you're yellow and haughty and greedy and, and those sorts of things. And they're, they're stereotypes which persist to this day. Yeah, so by the, by the say, the 18th or 19th century, you had literally lists of, of skin types and they were essentially given then character traits that are attributed mm. to those skin types. So what do you think that racism is truly based on well the the idea that we are tribal and that we are a species who naturally forms groups and therefore others as a verb enemy groups ethnocentrism as a concept is i think that's that's that is very much a human characteristic and that is has always been the case the 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 overlaps of those otherings of groups is is it's, it's varied and we see it in humans today with you know, whatever political party you support, which might overlap or not with what football team you might support, which might overlap with your family group or your work group or, you know, or whatever. We do this naturally and we've always done it. And that's part of the the nature of being human. But when it specifically becomes associated with pigmentation, it is part of the, the generation of a system which is, is there to justify the subjugation of, of other people. And the, the universal buy-in to this system, which occurs from the sort of 17th century in, in Europe onwards, that, that, I suppose, is the significant difference between that and what has come before. The fact that we've continued and maintained that, what is definitely a pseudo-scientific model of, of classification, of human classification, that, I suppose, is the most surprising thing, the sort of persistence of this idea, which is demonstrably false. I think you use sport as as a as a good example of that inherent social racism. You know, the idea that people of African or West African descent have a superior athletic ability. Can you can you unpack that a bit further and explain why why you use this as an example? Yes, yes. So I had to fight slightly to keep this in the book in the very early stages because I recognise that not everyone is interested in sport. I I am. I I, I love sport. See, I'm not. I'm not massively interested in sport, but this really spoke to me, interestingly. Well, that's good. That's, yeah. that's, that's important to me because 
I argue in the book, and I think this is true, that sport is a is it's one of the ways historically and nowadays that we see the behaviour of people from around the world at the extremes of ability. And for that reason, I think we it's very easy to make stereotypes and sort of generalisations about people from around the world based on what we see at elite level athleticism. And for that reason, I think that that, that sport plays a major role in, in contemporary culture in reinforcing stereotypes that may have very deep roots back to people like Linnaeus and Voltaire and Kant about black athleticism, for example, or black physicality more generally, that, that aren't supported by, by our modern understanding of genetics and physiology and human evolution and so on. And, and I'm, I'm really interested in the book in talking to people who don't think of themselves as being racist or who are not you know, aggressively racist. Part of the book is about ancestral purity, a bit like what we talked about with uh, Edward III at the beginning, and talking about white supremacists. In a sense, you're never going to persuade a white supremacist that their arguments are are not rational or not scientifically valid because they're not based on... Well, it's the, it's the uh, Jonathan Swift line, isn't it, that you, you can't argue someone out of a position they didn't argue themselves into. Of course, I paraphrase because I can't remember exactly what he said. But... I think that sport is important because a lot of people who are who love sport mm. end up holding stereotype views stereotype views which are effectively part of the structural racism which is the foundations to the the sort of the violence that we're currently seeing in in America and and um, just general systemic racism which is expressed in things like the Windrush scandal here or the fact that you know more black people die in custody than, than than white people and so on you take an example like west african descendants or the descendants of the enslaved in the americas having total dominance in the 100 meter sprint in the olympics for what is now 40 years so the last white man to compete in the olympic final of the 100 meters was alan wells and and also that was the year that america had boycotted it the olympics because it was um, because it was in soviet russia and so you think, well, okay, if there hasn't been a white man in the final, let alone winning it, let alone running sub 10 seconds, then surely that is a pretty persuasive argument that there is something inherent and biological, i.e. genetic, that is unique or exceptional to the, the descendants of West African or West African people that are, are, well, the descendants of the enslaved in the Americas. That kind of is a common sense argument. The problem is, it just falls apart with the, with the simplest scrutiny. The first thing is that actually the number of people that have competed in that race since 1980 is only 58, right? So from a, from a scientific point of view, that's a sample size which is just appalling. The second thing is, you, you, what you're actually doing there is by looking at elite athleticism is you're already... You've already selected for being good at the 100 metres before you're selecting for any sort of ancestral basis. So your sample is massively skewed. If we were to, we could answer this question definitively if you were looking at everyone running the 100 metres rather than elite athletes. And then you look at the genetics and you say, well, there are some genes associated with explosive energy, and that's definitely true. And they certainly occur at a higher frequency in elite short distance athletes such as sprinters. The question is, do they exist at a higher frequency in African-Americans who are descendants of the enslaved? And the answer is, 
possibly a little bit, but certainly not nearly enough to account for the total dominance of black Americans or Canadians or, or Jamaicans in, in, this, in this one single race. So it becomes a question of, is there an essential character which is unique to a particular population which bestows specific physical advantage that is expressed in, in specific sports? And when you express it like that, the answer is just a categorical no. There's an equivalent argument for long distance running and the dominance of Kenyans and Ethiopians for the last you know, 20 or 30 years. And, and you get you, you come to a similar conclusion quite quickly. There is is a genetic basis to sporting success in, in specific sports. Is it exclusive to particular populations? No, it is not. What is more significant is the culture in those communities, in those in those cultures for for those particular sports. So if a say a white woman had long distance running, for example, in her DNA in her family their parents mother or, or grandmother or whatever is a is a long distance runner are they more likely then to have superior natural ability in comparison to others so it's not actually to do with 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 race or or ethnicity it's more to do with your gene pool is that is that correct well so there is definitely a genetic advantage a physiological advantage for example to be good at endurance sports there's no doubt about that but is it is it the be all and end all of being successful at long distance sports or endurance sports no it is not but is it inherited yes it is so the the question is is that genetic advantage is that exclusive to specific populations and the answer is complex because science and history are complex. The, the answer can be framed like this. You, you, we do know that Ethiopians and Kenyans, whose ancestor evolved at high elevations, at high altitudes, have this particular genetic advantage as an adaptation to living at lower oxygen levels as at high elevation. That's fine. That's un, un, uncontroversial. Is it unique to East Africans? It most certainly is not. And we see it at the same frequency in Tibetans and Mexicans and Moroccans also who evolved at, at similar levels of elevation. Does it exist in populations which haven't, haven't evolved at high elevation? Yes, it does. And there are plenty of long distance runners whose ancestors didn't live at high altitude. It's possible and it's in fact true that the proportion of people who are East African who have that particular ge genetic advantage is higher than people who evolved in lowland areas. That is also true. Is it exclusive to those populations? Do you think race has been adopted as a way of cultivating identity? Yes, I think it has. So the, the both by in a positive and, and negative way, humans are... are extremely interested in, in themselves, or extremely interested in our own personal and group narratives and the sense of belonging that is that we gain from spending time or associating with other humans who are similar to us. So again, a natural part of the human condition. When we talk about race, what we're talking about is what is referred to as a social construct, which means that race is a very real thing and an important thing and i think that it's not useful for for people who are who oppose racism to say that race doesn't exist it most certainly does exist because we enact it because we we decide that it it exists it it when we say it's a social construct it simply means that it is not something that can be verified 
biologically. The way we taxonomize humans using genetics, using biology, does not tally particularly well with the way that we do it socially. So we say it's a social construct. Now, some, sometimes people sort of disparage that idea by saying it's merely a social construct, it's just a social construct, which is, a, I, I find, a you know, silly argument because almost all our, our interactions are social interactions. Money is a social construct. Time is a social construct. Colours are social constructs, even though the basis for them is rooted in, in, in the physical. So it's perfectly fine to say something is a social construct and not a biological one because almost every interaction you have with another human for the entirety of your life is going to be a social one and not a biological one okay yeah that i read something that i think that you referred to was it some was it i think it was nazis drinking drinking milk is that is that correct yeah 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 this is <laughs> Milk chugging is a, is a phenomenon that's emerged in, in white supremacy um, in the last couple of years. And it's, a, it's just baffling. But, it, it, you know, it's, it's sort of to do with identity, but based on some amazing, brilliant evolutionary science that they've completely misunderstood. So the basis for this is that so, uh, most Europeans, most people with light skin, light pigmented skin, can drink milk after, after weaning, after breastfeeding. And this is to do with a mutation that occurred in Europe, a genetic mutation that occurred in Europe about seven or 8,000 years ago. Most people on Earth today and most people on Earth in history can't drink milk after, after weaning because they, a particular enzyme which processes one of the sugars in milk um, stops working by the age of about five. But there was a random mutation that occurred in a population in Europe few thousand years ago and with that we acquired the ability to process milk throughout our lives now this this was done by some of my colleagues at ucl and it, and it's it is you know high benchmark for understanding human evolution recent human evolution and the relationship between history and culture and and our genes so you know five stars to to the researchers who who did that and 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 use that as an example in human evolution no stars to the nazis who misunderstood this and presumed it meant that being able to process milk demonstrated your white superiority which is what they do and so they film themselves with their tops off getting drunk and then tipping milk all over their faces and drinking them which just makes them look really idiotic they've completely missed the the punchline to this research which is that this characteristic is not unique to Europeans. It's unique to people whose ancestors were pastoralists. So people, anyone who farmed dairy, whose ancestors were significant dairy farmers over the last few thousand years, have also acquired this, this ability, lactose persistence, it's, it's called. And that includes the Khoisan in southern Africa and the Tutsi in what is now Rwanda and Middle Eastern camel herders and basically small populations all around the world who who drank milk for thousands of years but but you know white supremacists who do this that they they didn't get that uh, that memo of course they didn't they didn't get many um <laughs> so which I, I mean naturally the next question is has science been used in the past to justify to justify racism in the sort of opposite way as, yes. as you're doing with your book yes yes and in fact through the history of post-enlightenment 
science as it as with regards to humans which starts off as being anthropology and sort of mutates evolves into genetics in the 19th and 20th century for almost all of that time it is the studying of human variation is used as justification for racism the taxonomy the system of taxonomy that we still use today was invented by Carl Linnaeus the, the great Swedish well, inventor of taxonomy, inventor of classification. And he includes humans in that and that they are done, it is done primarily by pigmentation, by skin colour, and also includes those judgmental epithets about character, the, the, the haughtiness of some people, the greediness of others, the laziness of others, and, and so on. And um, he, I mean, he even introduces a, another subcategory in a later edition, which is monstrous humans, which includes Patagonian dwarfs and... Uh, Mono-orchid hottentots, which is one of the strangest sentences I've, I've written, but yes, the Khoisan who, for some reason, have one ball. And, that, and I, I sort of mention that because it's funny, but also because it demonstrates that this is, this is a pseudoscience. And as, as science progresses and as the study of humans progresses, it, it still remains not just a taxonomy, a classification system, but a hierarchical one in which Europeans are always at the top. And as we move into the molecular era in the 20th century, first starting with blood groups and then progressing into the age of genetics and then the genome and then today, every single step of the way has been to demonstrate that those original taxonomies were incorrect and are not based on, on a decent understanding of either human evolution or human variation as it, as it stands today. There are real differences between people around the world and, and they are encoded in... in in genetics, but they do not correspond to the racial taxonomies that we still use in our vernacular, but were used throughout the history of scientific racism as a pseudoscience. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. I mean... So there's no such thing as racial purity. You make that very clear. Yeah. I mean, how extensive is our gene pool and why do you think there is still 
such a, um, a grip on the idea of racial purity in the minds of racists when science proves otherwise? Well, I haven't read the <laughs> they're not up to date is the is the answer yeah. but compared to you know how how strong the desire to to have you know that tribalism that comes with yeah, the patriotism or jingoism or or ethnocentrism or straight up racism as as it might be taught or learnt is very powerful and so the fact that you are descended from edward the third which i would stake my house on cool um <laughs> is it's not uh, please don't <laughs> into that. To, it, it, dem- it demonstrates quite clearly how inbred we are as a species. But the number of people who want to find out or, 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 or you know, they pay money to have genetic tests, commercial genetic tests, which think are going to tell them that they're descended directly from whatever lineage that they're interested in. It is the championing of sort of base human emotions about tribalism over what we actually know, over actual science and and there's a bit there's a big sort of irony here within this which is that the the deep history of humans is that we are an african species we did almost all of our evolution on the african continent and a small population migrated away from africa about seventy thousand years ago and it is from that small population that most of the rest of the people of the world are evolved and uh, what that means is that the genetic diversity within Africa absolutely dwarfs the genetic diversity outside of Africa. And th- th- that means that people within Africa are more likely to be more different from each other at a genetic level than anyone else in the rest of the world is to anyone else in the rest of the world. So you take a, you take a Khoisan tribes person and uh, an Ethiopian, and they will be much more different to each other than either one of them is to a Chinese man or woman or a, or a Maori or a Native American. And, and I know that sounds kind of baffling, but it's, it's just a facet of our evolutionary history. Yet, for several hundred years, we just say black people, meaning 1.3 billion people in a continent consisting of 54 countries and more genetic diversity than the rest of the world. So evolution is very deceitful in that regard. That We use skin colour primarily as a sort of visual cue to who people are, when in fact it's, it's, it's not representative of, of human history at all. No, absolutely. And it's this sort of fairly modern, well, modern in comparison, obsession with skin colour and that categorization and this sort of sense of security in that categorization, which is 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 completely incorrect and it's 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 a fantasy is what is what you're saying it, it, it is and in fact a lot of the early sort of pseudoscience the, the Linnaeuses and the voltaires and the kants who are very instrumental you know important enlightenment thinkers on which western philosophies and thinking is is heavily based none of them actually went to africa None of them actually looked at any African people. And what we've only really started studying the genetic variation within Africa in the last five years, right? Possibly 10 at a stretch. Again, you know, terrible irony relating to hundreds of years of colonialism and Eurocentrism that only in the last few years have we determined, have we actually started measuring the pigmentation levels within Africa? and the genes that underlie them. And what we find 
you know, lo and behold, is that there is more pigmentation variation within Africa than there is in the rest of the world. And yet again, it starts off with Linnaeus describing Africa as black, and we continue to use that to this day. It is a meaningless biological thing to say. It's meaningless from a biological point of view. From a social point of view, it may have great significance. Saying, for example, describing people as African-American or African-Americans describing themselves as African-American is a, a, a social, a cultural taxonomy. The genetics that underlies um, the people descended from the enslaved in Africa is complex and, and mixed for, for quite well understood historical reasons to do with the nature of several hundred years worth of slavery, of the transatlantic slave trade. So it's not. It's really important that scientists don't cruise in and say, "Hey, race doesn't exist," and being an African American is not a biologically meaningful category. Being an African American is a hugely important cultural category. It's just that you can't use genetics. You can't have my tools to justify your bigotry because it doesn't say what you think it says. Five years. That's madness. It is, isn't it? That's madness. And that kind of, to me, says, okay, so that colonial ideology has endured longer than than I knew and expected, and that's quite shocking. It's it's so baked into our culture. It's, it's uh, you know, it, it's a classic example of un, unconscious bias or structural racism that we think that, that we just sort of, many people are just simply unaware of, that no one thought, whilst whilst relying on hundreds of years' worth of of the suppression and subjugation of a continent, uh, ba- basing that on pigmentation or some, something like pigmentation. No one thought to actually look in Africa at pigmentation and look at the genetics that underlies it until the 21st century. And as soon as we do, and as soon as we do in a way which is proper engagement with African people from specific countries, allowing scientists to own their own stories rather than what I describe in a different book as, as soft scientific colonialism, which is, you know, derived from anthropology, Westerners, white saviours coming in and, and measuring people and then going away and, and telling them how they are. We've only really started doing that in the last 10 years. And uh, it's, we're, I suppose we're in a place where we're, things are getting better. But those type of ideas, that type of behaviour and that type of ideology is very, very structurally present in not just science but of course in in all society but it's definitely present still in in my field in human genetics you call this book a weapon or a tool which i like it's like a guidebook isn't it it's just sort of how it's an educational text i mean as, as most books are but it really does give people the education and the numbers and the statistics and the evidence they need to create a, to create a strong and sound argument can you give me a couple of examples without sort of you know asking you to give too much away of the book of how people can how people can argue with a racist so yeah i hope so i hope i hope it is i, I hope it is useful part of the genesis of it was i've written about race and genetics in the past um, quite a lot because it's sort of central to my whole field part of the genesis of it was that a lot of people were especially younger people, was saying, you know, I get into conversations with my parents or my uncle or someone in the pub, and they say things which they don't think are racist, but I'm pretty sure they are, but I don't know how to counter it. And it, and that's, again, we were talking about sport earlier. That That is why I think sport is particularly important in this regard. But also stereotypes about things like Jewish intelligence 
or natural musical abilities. You know, black people have natural rhythm. Yeah, they can. Black people can dance. That's right, something right. that you hear quite a lot, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. And these are the, the, you. We, we sometimes refer to these as positive attribute racism. Where you're actually saying, well, who wouldn't want to be a faster runner? Who wouldn't want to be a better dancer or better at music? Or or smarter? You know, the Ashkenazi Jewish people are disproportionately successful. But it is an awfully racist thing to say, isn't it? Because that's basically saying to somebody that their skill that they might own as a unique individual is only attributed to their their race and their ethnicity, which is insulting. To, well, right, to ancestry rather than... Their, their own hard work. Yes, that, that, right. that, that is true. But it, it's a funny thing for a geneticist to be spend your whole life saying that genetics is less important than you think. But even with those positive attribute characteristics, those, those effectively racialized characteristics, such as being smart or being good at athletics, um, being sporty, they all, well, the first thing is they're not true. Right, they are stereotypes and myths, which may have some some basis in reality. But they take that, that one of the lines I use in the book is that if you take, for example, the fact that no black people have won a Nobel Prize in science, and that 142 Ashkenazi Jewish people have, if you take that as the end point of your argument, then you're effectively doing nothing other than reinforcing a racist idea. If that is factually true, which it is as is the fact that no white man has been in the Olympic 100-metre sprint since 1980. If you take that as the end point, then you're not doing science, you're doing confirmation bias. You, you know, you're, you're just using the data to reinforce uh, um, something that you already think. Those sorts of data points should be the beginning of inquiry. They should be the beginning of the point of trying to understand why that discrepancy might be a real phenomenon. And when you, when you start with those, those points... It becomes relatively clear, and this is what I talk about in the book, trying to unpick the basis for those types of data. And in every case, what you find is that culture is more important than genetics, and therefore these things are, are, are fluid through time, much more so than ingrained in our, in our DNA. And w- what I want the book to do is to enable people to have those tools to hand, to, to, to when when these when these sorts of conversations naturally arise, you say, well, actually, you know, well, yes, but if you look at this, if you look at the fact that the Finns were dominant in long distance running for forty years uh, at the beginning of the twentieth century, rather than East Africans, or that the best basketball players in America for most of the twentieth century were Jews rather than African Americans. Or that the strongest correlate for winning a Nobel Prize in the sciences is not being Jewish, it's having a Hungarian Jewish mother. And in, and in fact, if you take the cultural importance of scholarship, which is perhaps prevalent in no greater depth than in Ashkenazi Jewish populations, that that is a more significant correlate than some sense of ancestry, then these are much more parsimonious arguments that explains those real discrepancies. The, the other thing that, that I think is important about this is that those stereotypes which we might think of as being positive simply reinforce historical stereotypes which are there to subjugate or to other people. The notion that Jews are more intelligent than, than other people, and that is genetic, that is inherent, is exactly what the Nazis used to say we should be just suspicious of these people who are smarter than us and have better control over money than us. And therefore, they are our enemy because they are potentially threatening to us. 
the rationalization that black people are better at sport or physical things such as dancing is a, a, a reinforcement of ideas that are 400 years old, which were used to subjugate African people to say they're not as intelligent as Europeans, but they are stronger. Therefore, we should use our intellect to subjugate them and use their brawn to extract what we need from them. It even goes to the extent of the stereotypes about sexual performance. The notion that black men have larger penises than Europeans is A, not true, but is used as a, some, some really spurious data by some scientific racists has helped perpetuate that myth. But what it says is that black men are physical and sexually threatening. Yeah, I was going to say there's something about all of the characteristics that you've just described that, that say threatening, and that's why in some way people have been, been subjugated and, and made to be inferior because of because considered as a threat. Yes, that's exactly right. And sport, sport comes back into this again because the, an excellent study from a couple of years ago showed that when in, in commentary from sports commentators and the media talking about elite athlete, athletic sports... In the vast majority of times when a, a black athlete was, was being discussed, they would refer to their physicality and their physiology. And in the vast majority of cases where a white athlete was being discussed, they were referred to hard work and their intellectual abilities. Now, it shows just how deeply baked these prejudices are into our culture, that in, in something where, where you're just discussing elite athletes... And, and celebrating elite athleticism um, and the extremes of human ability, we are so culturally ingrained that the ideas of physicality in, for example, Africans or African-Americans is so ingrained in our culture that it just it's just the baseline from which our cultural conversations take place. And it's not scientifically valid. And that's what the book should be. It should be just to say, you know, you, the way you're talking about this is effectively reinforcing cultural stereotypes, which are the foundations of, of, of structural racism that, that we have in the West. So that's, that's why I say it's a weapon. That's why I say it's, it's a, the book is a toolkit. And a fantastic one it is. Congratulations on, on producing. I think it's, it's so important. It's a, it's a definite must-read. Adam, where can people... Um, I mean, obviously can't go to the bookshops at the moment um but where else um where else can people get the book and where can people find you generally you do quite a lot on radio 4 don't you i'm on radio 4 all the flipping time and i can only apologize for that and um of the social medias i only do twitter but i do do it quite a lot and as we're speaking the rights in america are dominating the news and and the, you know i'm part of lots of discussions about structural racism about how, how we speak about race and you know these these are troubling times and I hope these sorts of texts and other books such as Reniero Lodges or um, and, well you know the, the, the list is is growing um, th these these should be used as resources that we can educate ourselves about the nature of, of racism I, in in my case the pseudoscientific basis on which many stereotypes are are based. You're right. The first step is is to is to take the responsibility and to educate yourself. And so I can only endorse your your book for that purpose. Thank you so much for coming on Hidden Histories. It was a real pleasure. You're my first scientist. <laughs> well, I some I do pretend to be a historian slightly, and and I'm very very grateful that historians have have not 
immediately kicked me out of their house because I've been writing about history now for three or four books. I I don't think you should be grateful. I think your I think your work is is a necessary and very complementary factor. So don't don't be grateful at all. It's it's completely necessary. Well, I I I am because I think that some of my people, I scientists sometimes have a tendency to think that our evidence base is unimpeachably better than any other evidence base. And for that reason, there's been plenty of examples of scientists charging into disciplines that they don't know or don't understand, assuming that what they're bringing to the table is better than what's come before. And so there have been plenty of examples I can think of in which there's the reaction from historians has been justifiably hostile because of scientific hubris and I I think I said at the beginning but if I didn't let me restate it genetics and DNA are a complementary historical source to the much older and more established uh, ways that we have of understanding the past and I and it should be a complement it should be it should be something which sits alongside what you do Exactly. It's it's another tool, isn't it? And I think a historian has to use every tool that they have at their, at their fingertips. And science and data is, is one of them. And actually, we're very fortunate to be historians today because there's much more of that. And that can provide complementary evidence. Well, I hope so. And I hope that we, we, what we do is we work in evidence-based fields. And science is no less subject to interpretation from the evidence base than history. And the, the more we share our ideas and our resources and our techniques and tools, the, 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 the better everyone else is, uh, everyone else is off for understanding the past. Absolutely. Right. Right? <laughs> All right. right. Yes. Do we agree? Absolutely. Unless you're in the Middle Ages, in which case a lot so. of that speculation. <laughs> Interpretation. <laughs> A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.